Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. While the SARS-CoV-2 virus has rarely led to severe infection in children, a new syndrome began to present itself in areas with high incidences of COVID-19. Multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, known as MIS-C, is a recently discovered syndrome with high morbidity and close resemblance to other pediatric inflammatory conditions. MIS-C is characterized by intense GI symptoms, cardiac abnormalities, acute inflammation, mucocutaneous changes, and multi-organ involvement. In this podcast, Dr. Natalie Haddad describes MIS-C epidemiology, identifies key findings that distinguish it from others, and explores current treatment options for children. While the COVID-19 pandemic has continued to spread unabated across the world well into 2021, many of us have felt the direct impacts of this virus either through family, friends, or here in the workplace. Now, the one silver lining of this virus that has caused us some peace of mind is the fact that our children seem to be largely unaffected, or so we thought. At the end of 2020, a series of eight children were admitted to emergency departments across the United Kingdom with high fevers, systemic inflammation, and multi-organ failure. This condition has since been named multi-system organ failure in children, or MIS-C. Today, I'm going to be describing the epidemiology of MIS-C. I'm going to be outlining some key similarities and differences to some comparable pediatric conditions. And then I'll close out by discussing some potential therapeutic options that we're seeing used across the world for the treatment of MIS-C. Before we dive into all of that, I'd love to assess what your baseline knowledge is at this point. So if you could tell me prior to today, what is your familiarity with MIS-C? You can answer using the Poll Everywhere app or respond via pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. All right, fantastic. So I'm seeing mostly A's and B's, which is awesome. So hopefully by the end of today, you'll feel a little bit more comfortable potentially treating a patient with Miss C. So as I mentioned, our first cases really started in the United Kingdom, where we saw about eight children coming into emergency departments. What's interesting is that these, fact, uh, these children were actually previously healthy, no comorbidities, and they were actually originally diagnosed with Kawasaki's disease. Now, on May 4th, we saw our first cases here in the United States in New York City, where we saw 15 cases reported. By May 12th, the New York State Department of Health actually reported 102 patients presenting with similar presentations. Finally, on May 15th, we actually got our first case definitions for this syndrome by the CDC and WHO. And by May 38th, 48 of our 50 states had reported at least one case of MIS-C. Now, looking back at all these children, they all had one thing in common. All had tested positive for a recent or current COVID-19 infection. With this information, clinicians began to speculate there must be some relationship between these two clinical syndromes. In fact, if you look at this graph of the incidence of MIS-C shown in blue as compared to the incidence of COVID-19 shown in black, you see that there does tend to be a temporal relationship between the incidence of these two syndromes. In fact, we also saw that in areas with high endemic incidences of COVID-19, including the UK, Italy, and New York, we also saw high cases of MIS-C as well, dating about two to six weeks later after the primary COVID infection. 
Since May of 2021, the CD has actually, CDC has reported 3,742 cases of Miss C and a total of 35 pediatric deaths. Now, like I said, in January, we finally got our first definitions of, of uh, Miss C from both the CDC and WHO. The first thing I want to point out is that they differ in regards to the age and duration of fever. Now, these are not the only two definitions we have for Miss C, but these are by far and large the most commonly utilized. So for the CDC, they say a kid must be less than 21 years old and have a fever for at least one day. WHO says they must be less than or equal to 19 years old and have a fever lasting at least three days. Now, there's no real understanding on why these differ so much. Largely, we're still learning about Miss C as more cases present, and I suspect that these might be tweaked a little bit more in the future. Now, things we see in common between the two definitions is that at least two organ systems must be involved. We must have laboratory evidence of inflammation, so this can be anything from an elevated ESR, CRP, ferritin, etc. And they also must have laboratory evidence or epidemiologic evidence of a COVID-19 infection or exposure. Ultimately, this is a diagnosis of exclusion, and since I'll be discussing some very similar pediatric conditions, you should make sure there's no alternative diagnosis before beginning treatment for MSC. Now, a kid can present with a myriad of symptoms, and so I'm going to go to some of the most common ones here. So first, from a mucocutaneous standpoint, we've actually seen that about 42% of patients will present with a fever and rash. Gastrointestinal symptoms tend to actually be the predominating symptoms we see in kids with vomiting, abdominal pain, and diarrhea occurring in 71% of pediatric patients. Now, you can get some neurologic uh, symptoms as well, some irritation of the meninges, headache, lethargy. However, this is not one of the more common organ systems involved. And again, inflammatory markers and one of our key characteristics, typically seeing elevations in CRP at least. Now, the second most common organ system to be involved is the heart, where we'll see elevations of troponins, pro-BNP, and they'll also likely come in hypotensive and tachycardic. While this is related to COVID-19, we actually do not see too many pulmonary effects, and very rarely do these kids progress to need mechanical ventilation. Now, we tend to see a leukocytosis with a predominant neutrophilia, as well as some hyponatremia and renal failure, but typically secondary to hypoperfusion and hypotension. Now, if you look at the pathophysiology of how this infection occurs in adults, typically you'll have early infection with the virus. You'll have a pulmonary phase where the patient can experience chest tightness, cough, potentially respiratory distress. And then they may move into a hyperinflammatory phase, which is why we see adults ending up with things like ARDS. Now, for a pediatric patient, this looks very different. To start early infection is often mild if any symptoms present at all. The pulmonary phase is actually skipped, and these patients rarely have serious pulmonary side effects. And the hyperinflammatory effects are actually delayed, and we've seen MIS-C occurring about four weeks after primary COVID infection. So say we have a child that inhales the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's then able to go into the lungs, but we actually skip those lung effects that we typically see with COVID. What we do get is the production of macrophages, which then become activated, go on to the rest of the body, and then begin to divide. So we have our macrophage. It goes on to activate T cells, which then are able to activate, activate the production of TNF-alpha and a variety of different interleukins, really just promoting that cytokine response and ultimately the production of more macrophages, neutrophils, and monocytes. At the same time, those T cells are going on to activate our B cell line of humoral response, leading to the production of activated plasma cells, IVIG, or I'm sorry, IgG, and then ultimately culminating into the hyperimmune response we know as MIS-C. So you might be wondering, how is this different than COVID-19? How do we know this isn't just latent COVID-19? 
Well, we've actually compared how COVID-19 presents in the children who do end up experiencing symptoms as compared to Miss C. What we found is that those that do get COVID-19 tend to be the younger children. They also tend to have a history of a variety of different comorbidities, and they usually do pre present with respiratory symptoms. As compared to Miss C, which we've seen in older children with absolutely no past medical history, and they tend to come in with GI side effects and cardiac dysfunction. This brings us to our first question. So which of the following is not a component of either the WHO or CDC diagnosis criteria for Miss C? All right, so going through these, option A here would be incorrect because age less than 19 is actually one of the criteria for the WHO definition. Option B, laboratory evidence of inflammation is a characteristic for both diagnostic criteria. Option C, good job everybody, is the correct answer. We typically do not see patients coming in with acute respiratory failure and very rarely does that develop. And D, at least two organ systems involved is also a criteria for both definitions. So I mentioned a little bit about Kawasaki's and how this was confusing at first for clinicians when these kids first came in. And I really want to highlight why that is. And I think the best way to do that is through a patient case. So this is actually a kid that we had treated here at Mayo Clinic. So a 13-year-old boy presenting to an outside ED with a cheap complaint of fever lasting about five days. He also was noted to have some swelling and soreness of the lips and notably was diagnosed with hand, foot, and mouth disease just a few days prior. Now, his mother became concerned because he was increasingly more lethargic, his appetite had reduced a little bit further, and he generally was not doing any better. Now, no prior and past medical history apart from some uh, cold source. And upon checking vitals within the ED, they noted that he was febrile, tachycardic, and hypotensive. Now, for those who don't work in pediatrics, we do have different vital ranges and normal ranges for pediatrics. And so for a boy his age, a normal pulse would be anywhere from 60 to 100. So you'll note he is tachycardic. Normal blood pressure for a boy this age would be somewhere around 110 over 70s. So again, very hypotensive. Now on review of symptoms, he was noted for a positive for activity change, appetite change, fever and fatigue. He also, did, uh, he also was noted to have bilateral conjunctivitis, uh, positive for cough, a little bit of nausea. He also had some uh, myalgias and then a little bit of cervical adenopathy was noted as well. They got a series of labs, starting off with a CBC showing a slight anemia and a little bit of an elevated white blood cell count that was predominantly neutrophils. They also got a BMP showing that he was hyponatremic, hypochloremic, had an elevated BUN, elevated serum creatinine, as well as a low albumin and high AST. From this, we can derive perhaps a little bit of kidney damage, um, perhaps a little bit of uh, reduced albumin secondary to the reduced uh, appetite. But what they really got that kind of set this case apart is the inflammatory markers and the cardiac labs. So looking through here, you'll see elevated CRP, elevated lactate, elevated ferritin, elevated tropes, elevated pro-BNP, and a very elevated D-dimer. From this, they actually concluded in the ED that this patient had severe sepsis and septic shock. On their differential, they noted Kawasaki's disease, toxic shock, or MIS-C. And really what changed the clinical course for this patient was the fact that he ended up having a positive SARS-CoV-2 antibody. And from this, they decided that this patient required pediatric ICU admission, and he was helicoptered over here to Mayo Clinic Rochester. Now, I've talked a lot about Kawasaki's already, and again, if you don't work in pediatrics, I'd like to just give you a little bit of background on what this is. So this is one of the most common vasculitis of childhood. It's usually self-limited with a fever and inflammation lasting an average of about two weeks. Typically occurs secondary to some kind of viral illness, and it's actually the most common cause of acquired heart disease in developed countries. So this is not something we take lightly. 
Now, the actual pathophysiology is largely unknown, but we do see inflam uh, inflammation of medium-sized muscular arteries, which is where we get that cardiac dysfunction form. Now, clinical characteristics include bilateral non-exudative conjunctivitis. You can have some erythema of the lips and mucosa, cervical lymphadenopathy, and extremity changes. Sounds pretty familiar to Miss C. If you've ever heard the acronym uh, CRASH and BURN, this is used to describe the Kawasaki features. So C stands for conjunctivitis, R for rash, A for adenopathy, S for strawberry tongue, and H for hand and foot extremities. BURN here represents the fever that is characteristic of Kawasaki's. So one of the diagnostic criteria is a fever lasting at least five days. So this is something that's very, very specific to this syndrome. Treatment here is IVIG, aspirin, and very occasionally immune-modulating drugs. So a little bit more on the diagnostic criteria, like I mentioned, a fever lasting five days, and then any four of the following symptoms. So these are really those mucocutaneous changes that you might see. So again, conjunctivitis, um, oral mucosal membrane changes, rash, things like that. So if we compare this to Ms. C, because it was so often diagnosed with, as Kawasaki's disease early on, we do see some key differences between these clinical syndromes, first starting off with the age of the children. So generally, kids that end up getting Kawasaki's disease are about two to three years old. For Ms. C, mean age we're really saying is about eight to nine and up from there. Now, in Kawasaki's, they typically have a thrombocytosis. In Ms. C, we're predominantly seeing a thrombocytopenia. And while you do get inflammatory market elevations in both, they tend to be vastly more in, uh, increased in MIS-C. Now, you also get cardiac dysfunction in both, but the nature of the cardiac abnormality is a little bit different. So for Kawasaki's, it's usually myocardial edema um, without ischemia, so it's odd to see any kind of elevation in troponin or BNP. Typically, we do not have uh, damage or death of the myocytes, but that is something you would see in MIS-C. Otherwise, we also see a little bit of difference in the symptoms they present with. So you can get some GI side effects in Kawasaki's, but much more common in Miss C. Otherwise, we've also seen a little bit of a characteristic uh, ethnicity or race background, essentially, for those who do get Miss C. So far, it's been largely Hispanic and African-American children, which is also something that separates this uh, clinical syndrome from others. Now, there are many similarities, and so it wasn't completely unremarkable or unsurprising that these were mixed up at first in the beginning. So you'll see acute phase inflammatory marker elevations in both. You'll see all of those mucocutaneous changes in both. Um, and thankfully, both have a low risk of uh, mortality overall. From a symptom standpoint, however, these conditions can look very, very similar to each other. The next condition that is often compared to MIS-C is toxic shock syndrome. And again, if you think back, our patient that I presented on was actually originally diagnosed with shock. So this is a clinical illness usually due to staph aureus or strep pyogenes that is characterized by fever, rash, hypotension, and multi-system involvement. Now, staph and strep are able to produce a specific toxin known as toxin 1 that essentially leads to the production of super antigens, extensive T-cell activation, and a massive cytokine production. Now, these patients rapidly develop fever and chills, hypotension, dermatologic manifestations, and multi-system involvement as well. Treatment here is a little bit different since we do have an infectious source, so typically we're thinking about antimicrobial treatment as well as volume resuscitation for the shock and occasionally IVIG to help with the toxin clearance. Diagnosis criteria here is at least four of the following. You must have fever, rash, desquamation, hypotension, or three or more organ systems involved. 
I do want to talk about this rash specifically because the rash that we see in TSS is actually very specific. So it's an erythrodermic rash. It's a diffuse red rash that tends to spread. And usually about one to two weeks later, you'll see what's called desquamation or peeling of the skin, sloughing off of the skin that's very characteristic. Now, these patients also should be culture negative for any alternative pathogens, as this is likely strep or staph species. And then you should do your due diligence to rule out other uh, potential infectious sources. Now, when we compare these two syndromes, from a signs and symptoms standpoint, they're a little bit more varied. So TSS, you see slightly more conjunctivitis. You also will have a culture-positive infection, which is definitely helpful in differentiating the two. But if your patient is just presenting to an ED, you likely don't have this information quite yet. Miss c we tend to see more cardiac effects, uh, more GI effects, headache, and respiratory symptoms. And actually, cardiac dysfunction is probably one of the key things that helps to differentiate these two early on. With that, they both tend to occur in older children. They both can present with fever and shock. They both present with thrombocytopenia, and they can both have a rash as well. If we compare all of these across the board, it can get a little bit confusing to try and differentiate between what your patient might be experiencing. So if you see the patient case patient we have on the left-hand side and what they ended up experiencing, let's go through these and try to delineate what might, uh, what might be the most probable diagnosis. So for age of affected children, our patient was 13 years old. If you compare this across the board, we tend to see older children experiencing TSS and MIS-C. For hypotension, again, this is more common in MIS-C and TSS. Rash, you can cro uh, cross the board, but erythrodermic rashes are a little bit more specific. But again, on early presentation, this is not always something very obvious. Altered mental status is usually secondary to shock or hypoperfusion. So again, something more common in TSS and MIS-C. GI predominates in MIS-C, but you can have it in toxic shock. Respiratory distress, again, not super common in MIS-C, but you can see it, you can see it in MIS-C as well as TSS. Myalgias, TSS, and MIS-C. And as we go through this, you can see why it might be very, very difficult at first to differentiate what your patient actually has. White blood cell, you'll see neutrophilias across the board, platelets, thrombocytopenia, specifically in MIS-C and TSS, dimer elevations in MIS-C, and this is something that can help differentiate between the other ones because it's only elevated typically in MIS-C. Creatinine, you'll see secondary to hypoperfusion. And then finally, proBNP is one of our other factors that really helps to delineate MIS-C from KD and TSS. So think back to our patient. The team assessed... Uh, test our kiddo and said, okay, well, he came in hypotensive. He has all these elevations in D-dimer and pro-BMP. This is likely not looking like Kawasaki's. They saw the shock, got concerned for toxic shock syndrome, but ultimately after day two or three, we didn't see any positive culture results. Again, we had that cardiac abnormality, and we thought this is likely not toxic shock. And as a result with that SARS-CoV-2 antibody, they concluded this is likely missy. In fact, they actually said, given the positive SARS-CoV-2 antibody, overall systemic inflammation, and involvement of more than two organ systems, this is likely MIS-C, and ultimately started methylprednisolone, IVIG, and low-dose aspirin. So this brings us to our second question. Which of the following laboratory findings or clinical syndromes is present in MIS-C but not in TSS? I'm glad to see we have some different answers across the board because this is not a very straightforward question. It's a little bit tricky. So going through these answers here, gastrointestinal symptoms, we tend to get much more of this in MIS-C, but it can be present in either. So this is not the correct answer. Option B, elevated D-dimer, would be the correct answer, as we know that cardiac dysfunction is one of the key things that sets apart MIS-C from TSS. 
rash, you can get rash with both, although there is that more characteristic rash in TSS, a rash is still possible for both conditions. And then actually option D, neither of these conditions present with thrombocyto uh, thrombocytosis and both present with thrombocytopenia, so this would be incorrect as well. All right, so I've talked a little bit about how it presents, but what do we do when we have a patient coming in with MIS-C? Really, our goals of therapy here are, one, to decrease systemic inflammation. And so this is the primary driver of all of the organ dysfunction we're seeing, so this should be the first thing on your mind when you're uh, faced with a patient with MIS-C. Restoring organ function can relate to both restoring organ, for, uh, organ function that's been reduced due to hypoperfusion, but also preventing some of those long-term complications like cardiac abnormality development that we've seen both in Kawasaki's disease and now with MIS-C. I have three disclaimers before we go into treatment that I think are important to note. One being that there's actually no available literature at this point comparing therapeutic approaches for MIS-C. Largely what we've been using for the treatment of MIS-C comes from extrapolated adult data or similar pediatric conditions. And you'll see some strong similarities between how we treat Kawasaki's and how we treat TSS to how we treat MIS-C. So if you think back to this picture I had put up of how this actually works within the body, this serves as the target for a lot of the drugs that we're using today. So first one being IVIG, which is really targeting that B-cell humoral response. Next, we have corticosteroids, which target that cytokine production. And finally, I'll discuss some immunomodulating agents like anakinra and tocilizumab, which focus on interleukin antagonism. Starting first with IVIG, this is the most widely used drug right now for MIS-C and is generally becoming pretty much standard of care. So we're administering exogenous human IgG with some IgA and IgM. And this is something we've full-on borrowed from Kawasaki's disease, but with really great results. So the precise mechanism in MIS-C is unknown. However, we do know that the IVIG is able to interact with the FC gamma region on B cells. It's capable of opsonization and neutralization of toxins and essentially stimulates complement activation and downregulation of the inflammatory and immune responses. Now, in Kawasaki's disease, IVIG specifically has been found to help reduce cardiac artery abnormalities, and so that's largely why we started using this for MIS-C as well. All patients pretty much with MIS-C are going to get IVIG, and dosing is 1 to 2 mg per keg IV or sub-Q given as a single dose. You can repeat this dose, and I have seen it repeated, I believe, up to three times in case reports. However, generally, it's only repeated in about 7 to 10% of patients. Things to be aware of if you are giving IVIG, it is a large fluid volume, especially in older patients. You should have some caution in renal impairment, as we do know that it, it can accumulate in those patients and actually has been linked to some damage, uh, renal damage in, in specific. And then it also can cause some hypotension, so pretreatment with some Benadryl or Tylenol is sometimes advised. Aspirin is our next uh, standard of care drug, so this is an antithrombotic agent, again, something we've borrowed from Kawasaki's disease. This works by inhibiting COX-1 and COX-2. As we know, COX-1 is um, used for the, uh, for the production of thromboxane A2, a potent vasoconstrictor, and platelet agonist. So in Kawasaki's, or in MIS-C, excuse me, aspirin has been used to, um, for its anti-inflammatory properties and anti-platelet activities, again, to help reduce cardiac artery abnormality development. Now, if those do not do, essentially don't help reduce inflammation enough or your patient is still febrile, Oh, excuse me, all patients on aspirin, all patients with MIS-C generally will get aspirin and dosing can vary from moderate to low doses. This really varies with institution and here at Mayo we technically tend to just stick to the 81 milligram per dose per day max. 
Now, aspirin should be continued for at least four weeks. And really what we're looking for here is not only uh, inflammation res resolution, but also a lack of cardiac damage. So even if your patient doesn't have signs of cardiac abnormalities, they should get repeat echo and repeat cardiac labs at four weeks to make sure it's safe to stop aspirin therapy. You should monitor for liver enzymes, transient hearing loss, really just coming from that risk of salicylate toxicity. And then finally, I just want to point out that for those who maybe don't work in pediatrics, aspirin is not something we tend to use in peds, and it's something that you should be very cautious before initiating. This really comes from the risk of Rye syndrome. So Rye syndrome is something that we saw in the past for patients who were treated with aspirin secondary to uh, typically the flu or chickenpox, who ultimately went on to develop uh, intense cerebral edema and liver failure. So something to be aware of. We can use it for this condition and for Kawasaki's, but the overall use of aspirin in pediatrics is very limited. So if those don't quite do the trick and your patient is still persistently febrile or having signs of body-wide inflammation, you can consider using corticosteroids. This is a systemic hormonal agent. They have high affinity binding for cytoplasmic receptors, and they help to alter transcription and protein synthesis. So really what we're doing here is trying to suppress that inflammation and immune response. Now, we found this to be mostly helpful for patients that don't respond to IVIG, and so it's typically reserved uh, for once a patient has been on IVIG and aspirin and is still requiring further control. Dosing here really varies with institution and in that there's no set steroid dosing recommendation. Here at Mayo, we typically tend to do methylprednisolone 0.5 mg per kg Q6, um, typically for about six to seven days, and then you can transition to an oral regimen of prednisolone or prednisone. Typically, we wean this over two to three weeks, um, but again, this is all guided by symptom control. From a safety standpoint, we also generally try to avoid corticosteroids in kids if we can. Uh, so things to just watch out for would be blood glucose changes, agitation, hypertension, um, and growth suppression. So moving on to some of our immune-modulating agents. So this is typically reserved for what we would call a refractory patient. Anakinra is an IL-1 or interleukin-1 antagonist. So IL-1 in the body is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. This drug is a competitive inhibitor of the IL-1 receptor. And so really this is targeting that cytokine release syndrome again, and this is thought to help uh, reduce overall cytokine production in MIS-C. So this is reserved for patients who are persistently febrile or having persistent inflammatory marker elevations despite IVIG and steroids. It's actually a dose taper over about nine days, so it's kind of a little bit of a long course as compared to our other agent that we'll discuss. And some things just to keep in mind, you can get infusion-related reactions with this as well, in addition to neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. And there are dose adjustments in renal impairment. Our other option, which we've mostly extrapolated from adult COVID-19 data, is tocilizumab. So this is an interleukin-6 receptor antagonist. So similar rationale for use as anakinra, but IL-6 is a pro-inflammatory cytokine um, that's involved in T-cell activation, immunoglobulin secretion, and uh, precursor proliferation and differentiation. So tocilizumab also targets that cytokine release syndrome in MIS-C. Again, it's used for what we would consider a refractory patient, but the dosing here is a little bit different in that it's actually just a one-time dose. It can be repeated up to, three, uh, up to three doses, and at this point, typically, a patient has a mortality risk of about 1% to 2%. From a safety standpoint, tocilizumab does have a risk of hepatotoxicity in GI perforation, so getting liver enzymes is usually advised, um, and it can lead to some infusion-related reactions, so pretreatment, again, is, is helpful. So this brings us to our last question. What would be your recommendation for additional medical management? 
I have a case. A 14-year-old girl has been in the PICU for three days now with severe Miss C and persistent fevers. She has received two doses of IVIG upon admission and is currently on methylprednisolone and aspirin. What would be your recommendation for additional medical management? All right, so let's go through these answers. Option A, give another dose of IVIG. Typically, we don't go above two doses. At this point, I would consider probably the need for a different mechanism of action agent, so this would be incorrect. Option B, start acetaminophen. While this might help with the fever, it's not really getting at the primary cause of this whole syndrome, which is that inflammatory response. Option C, I think, would be the best answer here. Anakinrin IL-1 inhibitor would be a little bit more helpful, I think, because it has a different mechanism of action and can help promote uh, suppression of the immune response. And option D, you could do this, but again, probably not the best option here. All right, so I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap in case any of you are ever faced with a Miss C patient in the future. Pretty much all patients are going to get IVIG and aspirin. This is becoming standard of care for the treatment of Miss C. We've seen really great outcomes with this treatment. If they have persistent inflammation or fever, the next thing I would consider is doing a repeat IVIG dose and or considering corticosteroids. You can do both of these or either. It's pretty commonplace, I think, for most patients to end up on both. And then finally, if you have a refractory patient who's still not quite improving, still has that body-wide inflammation or signs and symptoms of Miss C, the last thing you can consider is doing either anakinra or tocilizumab. Typically, you're choosing one or the other. You would not be doing both of these together. So just to wrap up our patient case, on day one, he was given one dose of IVIG. He started on aspirin and methylprednisolone. By day two, they actually grew very concerned, just given the fact that he had already had a fever for five days and was doing quite poorly. And so they went ahead and added anakinra. On day three, they got an echo that showed dilation of the left main coronary artery, as well as moderate tricuspid valvular regurgitation. And at this point, they were a little bit concerned about developing myocarditis. However, given that anakinra had just started, they decided to hold course. Day six, they saw improvement in all inflammatory markers. IV methylpred was able to be changed to oral. And then finally, on inpatient day 10, our patient was able to be successfully discharged home. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.